So you're in the right room if you'd like to hear about the windfall clause sharing benefits from AI. Our speaker is Cullen O'Keefe. Since he graduated from Harvard Law School, Cullen has been working part-time as a research affiliate with the Center for the Governance of AI at the Future of Humanity Institute. Starting in August, he will be working on AI policy as a research scientist at OpenAI. His research focuses on the law, policy, and governance of advanced artificial intelligence. He also served as president of Harvard University's student EA group and as vice president of the EA group at Harvard Law School. Please welcome Cullen to the stage. Thank you. So today I'll be talking about a research project that I led and am leading at the Center for the Governance of AI at the Windfall Clause. A lot of us in this room believe this statement that AI could be a big deal. Uh, and as a result, we spend a lot of time focusing on the potential downsides of AI, so-called X and S risks. But AI could also be a very good thing if we manage to avoid those risks. It could generate wealth on a scale never before seen in human history. And therefore, if we manage to avoid the worst downsides of artificial intelligence, we have a lot of work ahead of us. Recognizing this opportunity and this challenge, at the end of Superintelligence, Nick Bostrom laid out what he called the common good principle, which I have on the screen here, saying that advanced AI should be developed only for the benefit of all humanity. It's in service of the common good principle that we've been working on the windfall clause at the Center for the Governance of AI. And We've been working on this for about a year, and today I'd like to share with you uh, some of our key findings and open questions so far. I'll start by defining our goal with this project, describing how we're going to pursue that goal, and end by sharing some open questions and inviting you to pursue those along with us. Our goal with this project is to work towards distributing the gains from AI optimally. Obviously, this is both easier said than done and very underdefined, as it invokes deep questions of moral and political philosophy. We don't aim to have those uh, questions answered with this report, uh, though hopefully our friends from the Global Priorities Institute will help us do that soon. Um, but we do think that this goal is worth pursuing and uh, something that we can make progress on for a few reasons. Uh, one is that it's just not a goal that we... Uh, will expect to be achieved naturally. Uh, the gains from the current global economy are distributed very unequally, as a lot of us in this room know from graphs like this one. And uh, AI could further exacerbate these trends by primarily benefiting the world's wealthiest economies and also uh, devaluing human labor. Indeed, industrialization has been a path to development for a number of economies, including the one uh, in which we sit today, and by uh, eroding the need for human labor uh, with complementary technologies like robotics, especially, AI could uh, remove that path to development. Industry structure is also very relevant. Uh, the advanced tech industries tend to be quite concentrated, and a number of people have speculated that uh, due to increasing returns on data and other input factors, AI could be a natural monopoly or oligopoly. If so, we should expect oligopoly pricing to take effect, which would erode social surplus and transfer social surplus uh, that remains from consumers to shareholders of technology producers. 
working towards the common good principle could also serve as a useful signal uh, to show that, number one, people in the technology uh, fields are taking the beneficial of AI seriously and therefore establish a norm of beneficial development of AI. And on an international level, uh, serve as a credible signal that the gains from cooperative or at least non-adversarial development of AI uh, outweigh the uh, uh, potential benefits from racing or adversarial behavior. Of course, uh, it's worth caveating uh, that I don't want to fall victim to the Luddite fallacy, the repeated prediction throughout history that new technologies would erode the value of human labor, cause mass unemployment, etc. cetera. Uh, those predictions have been proven wrong repeatedly, and they could be proven wrong again with AI. Uh, but in both cases, the answer ultimately turns on complex uh, economic factors and uh, is difficult to predict a priori. So... Uh, instead of making predictions about what the impacts of AI will be, I merely want to assert that uh, the previous uh, predictions are at least plausible, plausible reasons to worry about the um, gains from AI. Okay, so our goal is to distribute the gains from AI optimally. And uh, I've motivated some reasons why we think that that's worth pursuing. And uh, I'll now talk about our mechanism for doing that, uh, which is the windfall clause. So in a phrase, the windfall clause is an ex-ante commitment to share extreme benefits from AI. To explain this a little bit, I'm calling it an ex-ante commitment because it's something that we want uh, to be agreed to beforehand before any AI developer reaches or uh, comes close to extreme benefits. Uh, it's a commitment mechanism, not just an agreement in principle or a uh, nice uh, gesture, uh, something that would be in theory legally binding upon uh, firms that sign on to it. Uh, it's a plan, uh, a commitment to share extreme benefits from AI, so ultimately the windfall clause is about distributing benefits uh, in a way that's different and closer to the goal of optimal distribution than they would be without the windfall clause. And a lot turns on this phrase, extreme benefits. Uh, so I thought it would be worth defining this a little bit more. So uh, this is synonymous for the purposes of this talk with windfall profits or just windfall generally. Qualitatively, you can think of this as something like benefits beyond what we would expect an AI developer to achieve without achieving a fundamental breakthrough in AI, something along the lines of AGI or transformative AI. Um, quantitatively, you can think of this as on the order of trillions of dollars of annual profit or firm profits that exceed 1% of uh, world GDP. Okay, so a key part of the windfall clause is translating the definition of uh, windfall into meaningful firm obligations. And we're doing that with something that we're calling a windfall function. So again, that's the way that we translate how much uh, money a firm is earning into obligations uh, in accordance with the windfall clause. So uh, we wanted to develop a uh, windfall function that was clear and had low expected cost, uh, scaled up with firm size, was hard to manipulate or game to the advantage of the firm, and would not disadvantage signatories. Uh, for reasons I'll talk about later. So to make this more concrete stylistically, you can think of it as something like this. So uh, when firm profits are at normal levels, levels that we see now, obligations would remain low or nominal uh, or nothing at all. But as a firm reaches windfall profits, their obligations would uh, scale up on the margin over time. Uh, you can think of this as like your income taxes, right? So uh, the more you earn, the more on the margin you're obligated to pay. 
just as a side note, uh, this particular example uses a step function on the margin, but you can also think of it as smoothly increasing over time, and there might be strategic benefits uh, to that. Okay, so we're talking about the windfall clause, which is an ex-ante commitment to share extreme benefits from AI. Uh, and I've kind of explained what that means. So now uh, the next natural question is, is this something worth pursuing? A key input to that question is uh, whether it could actually work, uh, since we're effective altruists. Uh, we want it to actually take effect, right? Um, so uh, some uh, good reasons to think that uh, this might work is uh, number one, and I think like the question that got me interested in this in the first place uh, is that this is actually legal as a matter of corporate law. Uh, so, uh, as a general like background to American corporate law and why this was a problem that we initially had to confront, uh, firm directors, the people who control and make decisions for corporations, are generally expected to act in the best interests of their shareholders. The shareholders are, after all, the ones who give the money to start the firm. Uh, and so they're supposed to act in their best interests. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the directors have a lot of discretion in how they make decisions for the firm. Uh, the shareholders are not supposed to second guess every decision that corporate directors make. Um, and so traditionally, courts have been quite uh, deferential to firm boards of directors and executives uh, applying a very high standard needed to find that they have violated their duties to shareholders. And corporate philanthropy has traditionally uh, been seen as an acceptable means of pursuing uh, the best interests of shareholders. Uh, in fact, in seven cases uh, in which a firm has been challenged on uh, corporate philanthropy by shareholders, uh, in all seven cases, courts upheld that as permissible. So there's a good track record of stuff like this being upheld. Um, why is this permissible if they're, uh, if firm directors are supposed to be acting in the best interest of shareholders? Uh, traditionally, firms have noted that uh, corporate philanthropy can bring benefits like public relations value, improved relations with the government, uh, and improved employee relations. And the windfall clause could bring all of these as well. We know that um, there's increasing scrutiny by both the public, the government, and employees of how firms act. Uh, we can think of a ton of different examples of this. Amazon comes to mind. Uh, and uh, the windfall clause could help with all of this. Uh, when you add in executives who are sympathetic to examining the negative implications of artificial intelligence, uh, then there's a plausible case that they would be interested in signing the windfall clause. Another important consideration is that we think that the windfall clause could be made binding as a matter of contract law at least in theory. So uh, it's obviously uh, worth thinking about how a firm earning that much money might be able to circumvent or delay or hinder performing its obligations under the windfall clause, and that invokes uh, questions of internal governance and uh, rule of law. But at least as a theoretical matter, uh, kind of the first step in making this effective, uh, the windfall clause could be binding. So we have a lot of uh, work done on this project, but a lot of open questions as well. And I'd like to invite you to uh, kind of think through those with us and uh, share what we've done so far and what remains to be done. So on the uh, question, some of the hard questions that we've grappled with in this project uh, are number one, what's the like proper measure of bigness or windfall? So above, I kind of defined it uh, as related to profits, but there's also a good case to me, made that market cap is the right measure of uh, whether a firm has achieved windfall, since that actually is a better predictor of the firm's long-term uh, expected value. 
And then also uh, whether the firm should be, I'm sorry, whether windfall should be defined relative to the world economy or in absolute terms. Again, above, we kind of uh, made, made the assumption that it would be relative, uh, but there's uh, an open question there. Um, I think a more important question that we grappled with, though, is how to make sure that the windfall clause didn't disadvantage benevolent firms competitively. So to motivate this a little bit, it would be quite bad if uh, multiple firms were uh, potential contenders for achieving AGI, but only the most benevolent ones signed on to the windfall clause and therefore put themselves at a competitive disadvantage by giving themselves less money to reinvest in achieving windfall clause or making themselves less able to attract capital to invest in that goal and therefore making it more likely that amoral firms would be more likely to achieve uh, windfall profits or achieve AGI. Um, here are some ideas that we've had for how to do this. We think that these might go a long way in solving for this problem. Uh, definitely super unclear, though, that these are sufficient, and uh, it, uh, this is a question that we're continuing to explore. Okay, so those are questions that we have explored more. Um, some questions that are still largely open and that we intend to continue to pursue throughout the lifetime of this project going forward are things like, how does this interact with different policy measures that have been proposed uh, to address some of the same problems? Uh, and I think a bigger question, though, is how to distribute the windfall. I think that's like a pretty natural question for us as EAs to think about, uh, since we spend a lot of time thinking about this. Um, relevant like decisions that will need to be made uh, are who has input into this process, how flexible should this be to uh, input uh, at later stages in the windfall clause's lifetime, and uh, how to ensure that the windfall is being spent uh, in accordance with the common good principle. So luckily, uh, we as Effective Altruists have a lot of experience answering these questions uh, through charity design and governance. And so I think if this project goes well and we decide to pursue it further, this could be a relevant like project for the EA community as a whole to undertake, to think about how uh, to spend the gains from AI. Accordingly, the Center for the Governance of AI, in collaboration with partners like OpenAI and the Partnership of AI and Partnership on AI, uh, are intending to uh, make this a flagship policy uh, investigation, uh, one in a series of uh, investigations on this general question of how to ensure that the gains from AI are spent well and distributed well. Uh, and so in closing, I'd just like to reiterate uh, the common good principle and uh, make sure that when we're thinking about the potential downside risks of AI, we don't lose sight of the fact that once we uh, make AI that is safe and benefiting someone, uh, that we make sure that we don't lose sight of the fact that uh, there's a lot of problems in the world, a lot of problems towards which the benefits from AI could be put. Um, and that's a task worth pursuing on its own as well. Um, I'd invite you to, uh, if you're interested in learning more about this project and potentially contributing to it, uh, going to uh, pursuing one of the avenues I have on the right hand of the screen here. Um, and with that, I'll take questions. Thank you so much. Feel free to take a seat.
Thanks for your talk. Um, I think this is an area that's gotten, as uh, you would, I'm sure, attest to, has gotten about as much attention as you have given it. Um, <laughs> and so I think this is uh, illuminating to get other people on board. Um, yeah, so going, uh, oh, I think I might have left my phone up there, actually. Did I not? I did not see it. Great. Um, yeah, so uh, going back to maybe the origins of the product or the, the project that you've been focusing on, did you find there were uh, historical case studies that, that you were looking to of other examples where companies came into a lot of wealth or a lot of power and, and tried to distribute this more broadly? Yeah, so uh, we found one interesting one, which is uh, in the... Uh, in the uh, what is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo, when it was under Belgian colonial rule, a mineral company of some sort just came into so much wealth from its extractive activities there uh, that it felt like kind of embarrassed, basically, about how much money it has and tried to uh, do charitable things with it in the Congo uh, to as a way of diffusing uh, tensions there. Uh, I don't actually think that that turned out well for them. Um, but, uh, I mean, it is also quite common for firms... Uh, throughout the world to engage in corporate social responsibility campaigns in communities in which they work as a means of improving community relations and ultimately mitigating risk of expropriation or activist action or uh, adverse governmental uh, actions of other sorts. Uh, so there's a range of like very analogous cases to kind of more common uh, cases. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say are the mechanisms that currently exist in large companies that look closest to the kind of distribution you're thinking about? Yeah. So a number of companies make um, make commitments like kind of contingent on their like profit levels. Uh, so, uh, for example, uh, like. Uh, Paul Newman has his like line of foods that a lot of people, I don't know, my family, in my family, we like use Newman's own products a lot. So I don't know how much of a thing people know this is. Uh, but they like give all their profits to charity. It's like his charitable thing. Um, so that's like an, an, a close analogy to this. Um, other, like other examples are like, it's quite common to see companies making, uh, commitments like, you know, some percent of a purchase of this product will go to charity. Uh, so you might think that that's similar, although that doesn't have to do with like its relative profit levels, more of like purchase of a specific product. Uh, so it's not super common to see companies make commitments contingent on profit levels. Um, uh, I mean, OpenAI just restructured into uh, a structure that is somewhat like this. They call it a capped profit model. Um, and so that's like somewhat similar to this, uh, where they're giving all profits above a certain level to a uh, non the nonprofit that continues to govern them, so uh, that's another analogy. Right, neat. Um, yeah, so you did mention closer to the end of your talk that there are some legal uh, binding commitments that uh, a company could be held to, uh, assuming that they they decided to enter this sort of social contract. Um, but you could also imagine that they become so powerful for having come into so many resources that the, the power of law is, is a lot weaker in this regard. Um, can you say a little bit more on, on the mechanisms, if, if you have other mechanisms in mind that might actually be used to, to hold their feet to the fire? Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is an outstanding problem in AI governance uh, that's worth addressing not just for this project, but in general. We want companies to not be above the law once they achieve uh, AGI. Um, so uh, worth addressing for more reasons than the windfall clause. Uh, but, um, I mean, there's, like, very basic things you could do, like have the windfall clause set up in a country with, like, good rule of law and with enough, uh, like, police force that it could, like, plausibly enforce this. Um, 
but I think this is like a question worth addressing uh, beyond that, and one that I don't expect this project itself to solve. I guess another uh, another point along this lines is that this like involves questions of corporate governance, specifically like whom in a corporation has authority to tell an AGI what to do, um, or some like AI agent what to do. Uh, that will be relevant to like whether we can expect um, AGI-enabled corporations to follow the rule of law. Um, it also like involves AI safety. Um, questions of like whether AI systems are designed to be constrained by the rule of law inherently, regardless of what their operators tell them to do. Uh, so I think that that's something that uh, yeah is worth investigating from a technical lens as well. Um, so as you started, I know this is still like the first paper and what looks like maybe a series of, of research questions. Um, have you had a chance to speak with large companies that look like they might come into a windfall as a result of AI um, and, and see how receptive they were to an idea like this? Yeah, we haven't done anything formal along those lines yet. Um, we've pitched this at a few places more informally and have received generally positive reactions on it, so we think it's worth pursuing for that reason. I think this is kind of laying the foundations for further discussions and negotiations and collaborations to come. Uh, so that's how we see this project at this stage. Um, and presumably the actual process of getting commitments, if we want to pursue it that far, uh, will involve uh, further discussions and tailoring to the specific uh, like receptivities of different firms based on where they perceive themselves to be, what the, uh, what the executive's personal views are, and so forth. Right. Um, so one might think that if you're trying to uh, take a, a vast amount of resources and make sure that they get distributed to the public at large, or at least a, a large fraction of the public, that you might want those resources to be held by a government whose job it is to distribute those resources. Um, is it part of your, your line of consideration, the nationalization of companies that are doing this kind of project, or at least of that project that's likely to result in the windfall? Yeah. So I think there are reasons that we uh, think that the windfall clause could be preferable to taxation, um, but that is also not to say that we don't think governments should have a role in input for democratic accountability and also pragmatic reasons to like avoid nationalization. So I think like one just general consideration is that um, like tax dollars tend not to be spent as effectively as charitable dollars for a number of reasons, uh, and also for like quite obvious uh, stakeholder incentive reasons tend to be spent primarily on the voters of that constituency, whereas uh, you know the common good principle to which we're trying to stick uh, with this project uh, kind of demands that we distribute resources more evenly. Um, but I think as a pragmatic consideration, uh, making sure that governments feel like uh, they have influence in this process is also something that we are quite attentive to. Right. And if you might step back uh, another step, and instead of nationalizing a project, internationalizing a project, is there uh, some consideration in that space? Yeah, yeah. So one thing also that this project doesn't do is talk about uh, control of AGI. And one might reasonably think that, like, AGI uh, should be controlled by like humanity collectively, or you know, through some decision-making body that is representative of a wide variety of needs. Uh, this more has to do with uh, the benefits of AI, which is a little bit of a different question from control. Um, so I think that that's definitely worth thinking about more, uh, and might be a very worthwhile policy con pursuing on its own end. This project just doesn't address it. Right, and uh, as a, a final question. Um, 
the the whole talk is, is sort of predicated on the notion that there there would be a windfall from having uh, a more advanced AI system. Uh, what are the circumstances in which you wouldn't get such a windfall, and and all of this is for naught? Yeah, so uh, definitely a very good question. So one is. Uh, you know, I, I'm not an economist also, so uh, what I'm saying here might be uh, more uh, qualitative than I would like. But um, if you're living in a post-scarcity economy, then uh, money like might not be super relevant. Um, but it's kind of like hard to imagine this uh, in a case where uh, where corporations remain accountable to their shareholders. Those shareholders are going to want to benefit in some way. And so there's going to be have to be some way to distribute those benefits to shareholders. And so whether that looks like money as we currently conceive it or like vouchers for services that the corporation is itself providing is a um, interesting question uh, and one that I think like current corporate law and corporate governance is not well equipped to handle since money is the primary uh, modes of benefit. Uh, but if that's the case, then you can think of the windfall clause as capturing uh, those sorts of benefits as well. I guess like a more um, possible failure mode is just that uh, the firm begins to um, primarily structure itself to benefit insiders. So this would be like the gov- internal governance of a corporation um, without meaningful accountability from shareholders. So this is also like a rule of law question, because if that begins to happen, then the normal thing that you expect to happen in corporate law is that the shareholders vote out the like bad uh, directors or sue them um, for doing that. And uh, whether they're able to do that turns on uh, whether the rule of law holds and whether uh, there's meaningful accountability from a corporate governance perspective. So uh, if that fails to happen, then you could see that the benefits, you could foresee that the benefits might accrue uh, kind of qualitatively inside of the corporation to the corporate directors. Right. Well, with that cheery note, um, (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for your talk. Thank you.